You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. With an announcement before we get into our sermon series, uh, if you want to jump ahead, you can open up your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's where we'll be today. But before that, we're going to do an announcement. I'm going to invite Emily up front. Um, We talk about seeking to make disciples among neighbors and nations. And one of the ways we do that is through our international partners in Ecuador and Morocco. And one of the ways we do that locally among our neighbors, neighbors, nations, uh, is through our serves, what we call our serves. And you guys have heard us talk about this a lot. We probably should still talk about it even more. Um, that we're asking all of our members to be involved in at least one of our serves, whether it would be the Elizabeth House, International Students, Zateo, Little Free Pantry. And there's lots of different ways to do that. The best way is to get on one of those Slack groups. Um, Chris, I don't know if we have that, sign or that slide or not. If not, it's no big deal. Um, well, that, but also just of all the serves. Um, if not, no big deal. Um, but this is the one we want you to focus on today. And that's why Emily is here. Emily, there's some exciting things going on with how we serve international students. Um, Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, So the fall is a really busy time for welcoming international students to campus because a lot of people are coming as, like, the first-year students. And so there's a couple opportunities to serve international students with that. Um, One of them is through Madison Friends of International Students. So that is primarily where people get matched with international students just either for friendship or to host them in your home for a few nights. Um, But then the other thing that we're trying to get people excited about is this tour of Madison. And this is just a one-afternoon commitment where you get to drive two to three international students around in your car and just show them the city. And it's just a really cool way to welcome them to Madison and be like, this is our city. We want you to feel welcome here and yeah just answer any of their questions because they're in a completely new environment so So it kind of sounds like somebody that um enjoys hospitality Mm -hmm. and instead of like giving a tour of your house like we would do sometimes with someone new it's a tour (laughs) of our city yep exactly um how have you seen have you seen in the past this kind of thing uh bear fruit in towards discipleship yeah totally um yeah it's really beautiful so i think there's just like a genuine like desire and need for friendship when these students like come to the city and so like it's cool to see how even after this event you can continue to follow up with them and just have like really genuine conversations about maybe their religious backgrounds and your religious backgrounds and just even understanding American culture and some of the weird things with that and so it's just a really cool opportunity to get to know people and not just like our pre-misconceptions about what different cultures or religions are like, so you get to kind of clarify that, which is really cool. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for leading our church so well in this. If people want to jump on board, they just scan the QR code. Is that all they need to do? Yeah, and I'll just kind of clarify, too. There's, like, three main roles with this event. So there's a driver, so that's where you literally are just the driver of your car, and that's kind of your main role. And then there's readers, so they're kind of the person who's more in charge of, like, the interaction and telling, like, 
being welcoming and things, but there's even like a script. So if you feel uncomfortable in engaging in conversation, there's things that you can say to people. And then the last role is being a host home. So that's when you can literally like open up your home um, for different cars to kind of all converge at. And then you just like have snacks and get to like welcome people. So those are kind of the three roles you can sign up for. So we definitely need um, all those things. And even last year, I'll just say like we didn't have enough drivers and readers. So we definitely don't want any students to not have a car to drive in so think about yeah signing up <laughs> yeah so there's like a diversity of giftings there yeah like you don't have to be super extroverted <laughs> yeah. you could just be introverted and just drive <laughs> exactly right? yes yeah that's yeah that's that's great yeah. that's great cool yeah. well let me pray for us is that okay that's or okay. is there anything else you want to share no, that's it. all right let's pray <laughs> father we pray that this would be a beautiful event we pray that um as a church maybe your heart that is a heart for all nations could be reflected in our hearts um, maybe through something like this. And um, we pray that this event would be um, just one avenue of seeking to make disciples among neighbors and nations. And knowing that the nations are our neighbors, Lord, what a gift that is. And so maybe our vision as a church could be um, played out through this event that Emily is helping to lead. And um, we just thank you for her and her leadership. And we thank you so much for um, the opportunities that you've given us to serve as that is our identity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Emily. So, yeah, let me just give a little plug, like just connect the dots a little bit, um, how this, what we just talked about is, is a big deal. Like, um, in the last 12 years, I've had the opportunity personally to travel a lot. And that's done um, really, really cool things from my heart, um, cli- trying to climb into the shoes of someone that comes from a completely different world than my own. And the Bible does say that God is a God of the nations. And oftentimes there's a temptation, especially I think for Americans, to be more ethnocentric. It might be a, just a default setting for some of us. And, and actually sitting across the table or sitting in the car with someone who might come from Japan or China or West Africa or the Middle East. It's like a completely different world than Madison, Wisconsin. And, and they have a totally different way of thinking. And man, that, that can just do something to your hearts. It's just a reminder that, that God is doing things all over the world, not just here. And that's really, really good for us. And so I, I encourage you to, to, to think about that. Maybe it's not this opportunity. I pray that it is. But, man, just getting to know people of different cultures is like getting to know the heart of God because he's Lord of all of it. And at the end of all days, every tribe, tongue, nation, people, group, language, ethnicity, you know, the list goes on and on, will worship him because he is a creative God who's created it all. And so um, I hope that's who we are as a church. And that's played out in just this one small way here that you heard about this morning, okay? Well, let's, let's continue in our series in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I want to I start by just telling you quickly about um, our vacation we had most recently. We, we went to Virginia, annual family, or biannual, not biannual, every other year, is that biannual or is biannual twice a year? It's both. That's confusing, Ben. Gosh. I'll just say every other year we do this out in Virginia. 
and uh, we had our dog, Winnie, uh, at the dog sitter all week while we were in Virginia, and the dog sitter needed us to come home by 5 o'clock on Friday, and you know, I, I did the Google Maps thing and trying to be the psycho road trip dad where we're going to be on time and we're not going to stop and we're going to do all that, you know. I don't care if you have to pee. Um, so we're going to keep trucking. And I had it all dialed in and we were going to show up on time to the dog sitter because they had things they had to do. And, and we, I told her that we would be there by 5 o'clock. Well... What happened was, is in my failure as a good dad doing the vacation road trip, I failed to factor in that oftentimes there's only two seasons in the Chicago area. It's either winter or construction, right? There's only two seasons. And I forgot about the, the, the season of construction that is the Chicago outskirts, and uh, we got hammered with some bad traffic. And so I'm, the GPS, you know, when you're looking at it, it's like, continue, like time of arrival, and it keeps increasing. And I'm just like, ah, oh, this drives me nuts. It drives me nuts when stuff like that happens because I, I want to be a man of my word. And I said we'd be there at 5 o'clock, no problem. And we didn't show up until 6 o'clock. And obviously, we all know how that works. And we've all had times like that in our lives when we say we're going to do one thing and life happens, things that you didn't expect happen and it just doesn't turn out the way that you said it was going to turn out. And, and you, all you have to do in those situations, most people are reasonable. You just own it, apologize, and it's okay, right? We all understand this. But the, the point remains that key, is keeping your word is a big deal. If I did that, you know, every single time that we dropped the dog off of the dog sitter and I never showed up on time, what would that do to our relationship with the dog sitter? It would erode at that relationship, Right? So if your life is consistently saying one thing and doing another, or saying one thing and not doing anything at all, if this kind of thing happens all the time, you never have a sensible explanation, you never ask for forgiveness, what happens? People just start to feel like they can't trust you, right? And if you're consistently an untrustworthy person, all your relationships are going to fall apart. Why? Because... All relationships that are healthy or any relationship that has any profundity to it is going to have trust at the foundation. That's just how human relationships work. That's how our relationship with God works. But even more important, if, if you're a Christian, which means little Christ, Christians are, are said to be, by God, image bearers of him meaning we reflect him to an onlooking world. Now, we'll never do this perfectly. That's why we need the gospel. And when we fail to do it perfectly, what do we do? We own it. We name it. We confess it. We don't make excuses. We don't blame shift. We confess it, and we remind an onlooking world that my only hope in life and death is Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's it. That's all I got. But to the degree that we do keep our word, we show an onlooking world what God is like. This is how the Lord is. He always keeps his word. You can trust that when he says that he'll do it, he does it. God is always true to his word. God always keeps his promises. And we reflect God when we do that. 
So what's that got to do with our, our text for today? One of the big questions for the audience of First and Second Samuel, the original audience, many, many centuries ago, one of their big questions that the author, the writer of history, is seeking to answer and persuade his people of is what does a true king look like? Who is fit to be a true king? One of the things they're looking for always is a true king is going to keep his word. A true king will keep his, to use more biblical language, his covenant promises. And the author in our text for today is going to show us that David accomplishes this really well. David is a really good king as it stands in our text for today. David models the faithfulness and promise-keeping integrity of Yahweh in the account that we have. A true king is always faithful to his covenants. Always faithful to his promises. And that's what we're going to see in our text for today. It might not jump off the page for you right, right away as we read it here, but I'm going to explain it, and I, and I want to show it to you, and I think hopefully it will help us see what the author is trying to accomplish here. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1, and I'm just going to read this account that we're going to focus on today, and then we'll walk through it a little bit. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And The king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. So Jonathan is Saul's son, right? So this would be Saul's grandson. There still is a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. Verse 4, the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, in the, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show such regard, that you should show regard for for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, Mephibosheth. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him. And shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth and your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, 
according to all that my lord the king commands, we, his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. So there's some really key things that I want to show you that makes this text make sense for us, okay? And the first one is this. Look at verse 1 and look at verse 7. Look at verse 1 and look at verse 7. And the key phrase to understanding this whole section of Scripture is this. When David says, I'm going to do this for Jonathan's sake. See it there in verse 1? Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? In verse 7, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. So David is saying this whole thing comes about, why? For the sake of Jonathan. Now what does that mean? We don't understand that. We don't understand any of this text and what the author is trying to show us. Why is David emphasizing this so much? Well, to do that, we have to go back to the life of David. So let me just do a little review. A lot of you are are new this morning. And let me just give you the real, real quick overview of David's life, right? So uh, the prophet Samuel comes and says, David, you're going to be king. And Samuel anoints David as king. Now, that doesn't mean that David becomes king yet. It just means that that's the promise of God, that he will be king. Well, Saul hears of this, becomes very, very jealous. He fails as a king. God rejects him as king, but he hasn't fully removed him as king. So Saul has some years to flail against God's promise and seek to, seek to undermine and ruin God's promise and tries to kill David over and over again. Well, David happens to be also best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. So it's like this crazy soap opera-ish intermingling of relationships here, where Jonathan's best friend with David, but Jonathan's dad wants to kill David. How's that going to work out? So since Jonathan and David are are so close as friends, and Jonathan sees that his father, Saul, is acting completely crazy, Jonathan agrees to help David flee from the wrath of Saul and just to be saved, not get killed. And back in 1 Samuel 20, you might remember this, but a lot of you weren't weren't probably here that day, um, they have this really beautiful heart-to-heart conversation in 1 Samuel 20. And here's the key that you have to remember, and we're going to show you. They make a covenant to one another. They make a covenant to one another, okay? Now, let me pause and explain what that is. What's a covenant? We don't use that language very much. We talk more about contracts in our world today, but the Bible talks a lot about covenants. What's a covenant? A covenant is an agreement based on a loving relationship. 
Covenant is, is agreement based on a loving relationship. So this can be very, seen very clearly when we talk about a marriage covenant. We do talk about that in our culture today. A marriage covenant. It's an agreement based on a loving relationship. And in the Bible, if someone were to break their covenant, oftentimes accompanied with the covenant are some really serious penalties if the covenant's not fulfilled. It's, it's very solemn, it's very formal, just like a wedding ceremony. Like, I swear to do A, B, C, and D. Just like in a marriage. Unto death, till death do us part. All my friends and family are, are witnessing this marriage ceremony. I'm making a covenant to this woman, and she's making this covenant to me. And it's a, it's a serious thing, as we all know, to go back on your marriage covenant. And it's kind of like that in biblical covenants, but even more serious. Like, I would swear that I will keep my end, that I will keep my word of the covenant because I love this person that I'm in covenant with. And if I don't keep it, you can take my life as the penalty. That's the weight of most covenants in the Bible. And, and oftentimes, you'll see in, in Old Testament covenants, there will be an animal sacrifice as part of the covenant ceremony. And that's symbolic of if I don't fulfill my end of the agreement, may what happens to this animal, meaning death, happen to me. So now back to Jonathan and David's heart-to-heart conversation. You don't need to turn there, but it's going to be on the screen. This is back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Remember, this all connects to verse 1 and verse 7 of our text for today. This is the covenant they make to one another. This is Jonathan speaking. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more. So track with this. The language is kind of tricky, but track with what's happening here. He's saying, if my father is able to harm you, Jonathan says to David, then I'm asking the Lord to, to harm me if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, if I do not protect you, is basically, basically what Jonathan is saying. Should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, harm Jonathan, and more also, so it's like even more serious, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So part of my agreement, David, is I'm going to do all I can to protect you. If I fail at that, may, may there be harm from the Lord on my head. Okay? So that's Jonathan's side of the covenant. And here's where it connects to our text for today. This is David's side of the covenant. Jonathan keeps saying, if I'm, if I'm still alive, he says to David, he asks him to do this. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. So don't kill me when you come to power. And, and here's, here's where it connects for our text for today. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house, meaning my lineage, my, the people that come from, from me, my kids, my grandkids, forever. When... The Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So when you come to power, and at this time in history, when a new king would come to power, what would be traditional is all of the family members and supporters of the old king, they would get killed. 
so that there's no threats to the new king in his reign. Does that make sense? That was traditional. That's what Jonathan is talking about here. It's like, God promised you're going to come to power. And, and, and David, would you covenant with me right now that when that happens, you'll be good to my family? And so what happens? And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saving, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear. That's it. That's covenant language. So David swears by this as well, by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So that's David's side of the covenant. I'm not going to hunt down your kids and your grandkids and everyone that's connected to you, Jonathan. I will be good to them. David promises this, makes a covenant. They swear by it. So what do we have up to this point? That's a lot of background, but it's really important to show you what's going on in this text today. The author is, is, is broadly speaking, in these, in these last few weeks and months in Samuel, who's fit to be king? Well, it's clearly not Saul. He's a lunatic. God has rejected him. And a king has to be a covenant-keeping king. Seems like David here in our text, verse 7 and verse 1, he's a covenant-keeping king, right? That's what David means if you jump back to 2 Samuel 9, for Jonathan's sake. That's code for, I'm going to do this because I made a covenant with Jonathan. And, and, And good kings keep their promises. I'm trying to be a good king. I promised, I covenanted with Jonathan that I would be a blessing to any of his remaining offspring. Find me his offspring, we heard him say, to Ziba, right? So I can do this and keep my promise. That's what this text is all about. A good king always keeps, keeps his covenant. A good king always keeps his promise. Now, that's established David is keeping this promise to Jonathan by being so gracious to his son, Mephibosheth. And I want to show you the extent of this graciousness. And it's, and it's bound up in this word that's repeated also in this text, kindness. Look at it with me in verse 1. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? Meaning the lineage of Saul, so Saul, Jonathan, Mephibosheth that I may show him kindness. Verse three, and the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And, and Mephibosheth shows up. He's thinking he might get slaughtered, really scared. And what does David say? David said to him, verse seven, do not fear for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'll restore to you all the land of, uh, all, all, I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Now this English word, this, this word translated kindness in our English Bible, really important. It also shows you another way this text comes alive for us today. And the word translated kindness in our English Bible, is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. 
Oftentimes, we see the word in our Bibles, especially in the Old Testament, has said, translated as steadfast love. Steadfast love. A lot of you parents um, have read the Jesus Storybook Bible to your kids, and the way they translate it is, some of you can say it with me, the, the never stopping, never, never giving up, always and forever love. Is that right? Never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. I think that's right. Beautiful. That's Hesed. That's Hesed. Hesed love. The English word kindness doesn't really grasp the profundity of this for an Old Testament Israelite when they hear the word Hesed. It would be more like extravagant kindness, kindness that goes overboard. And what's wild is God describes himself, his character. When Moses says to God, I want to know you. Show me who you are. God says, this is who I am, Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed. Steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping hesed, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. God says it twice here as he reveals himself, like the essence of who he is, to Moses in Exodus 34, that he is a God of hesed. Our God is a God of extravagant kindness. He says he's abounding that there abounding in steadfast love abounding in hesed abounding in extravagant kindness hesed is what god is all about and here in our text david the king is showing that he wants to reflect this kind of godlike extravagant kindness in how he relates to saul's grandson You would think that after all that Saul put David through, there would be some serious guilt by association, right? Like, when I look at the grandson of this, of this guy, Saul, all I remember is what his grandfather did to me. Maybe I'm not going to slaughter him. I could because I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. But I don't want to look at him. I mean, his granddad tried to kill me three different times. He made my life miserable for years. But David doesn't do that. David doesn't do that. Like, Jonathan didn't earn David keeping his covenant. Saul certainly didn't deserve it. Mephibosheth didn't do anything to earn it. He just simply, simply showed up and received it. But David shows himself again to be a good, faithful king as God defines good and faithful. As he keeps his covenant that's centered around showing Hesed love to Jonathan's family. This kind of covenant-keeping love, this Hesed love, was the pinnacle of goodness in the mind of an ancient Israelite. 
Why? Well, because this is how God himself is. When he revealed himself to Moses, this is who I am. I am a God of extravagant kindness. I am a God of never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. So this is what we see happen in the life of Mephibosheth today. Like he didn't deserve any of this. Like he didn't earn it. He just showed up to receive it from the king, right? Now think about this guy, Mephibosheth, who receives this mercy. Like he doesn't have a good family name. He's associated with the enemy, Saul. He lives in this place called Lodabar. That doesn't sound like a God-forsaken place, right? And that's, that's what scholars would say. Lodabar was probably just kind of a back, backwoods, backwater, poor town in, in, in ancient Israel. And he's probably living in hiding because, again, of the tradition that the new king is going to slaughter the people that are associated with the old king. Even worse, he's physically handicapped. And in the ancient world, they didn't make provision for people that are handicapped like we do in our, our world today. If there was ever someone easy prey for revenge, it was Mephibosheth. There's ever someone in need of mercy, it was Mephibosheth. Like he can't even walk to David's table in light of this invitation, in light of this generosity. He probably had to be carried. His weakness and inability, it was, it was on full display for everyone to see. Like he didn't earn anything. He just received the mercy of the king because the king was faithful to keep his promises to bless him out of sheer love and extravagant kindness. Does that sound familiar to you? Let me read that again. He didn't earn anything. He just received the mercy of the king because the king was faithful to keep his promises to bless him out of sheer love and extravagant kindness. Like if you're a Christian here today, does that, does that sound familiar? Right? Jesus says in John 5, 39, that the whole Old Testament points to him. Jesus says in Luke 24, that the whole Old Testament points to him. That the Bible's ultimately about him. Jesus is the point of the Old Testament. Jesus leans and anticipates. The Old Testament leans forward and anticipates Jesus. Now, how does that apply here? Sometimes that's harder to see than others. This one is pretty easy. Like, David, in our text, man, he's doing great. David gets an A plus in chapter 9. Great king. He shows himself to be exactly the kind of king that God's people need in showing this extravagant, has said kindness to Saul's grandson, to Jonathan's son. Tragically, 
David's going to get an F in two chapters from now. And it's gross. And it's horrible. It's murderous. It's abuse of power. It's sexually immoral. David's a great king for Israel in chapter 9 until he's not a great king in chapter 11. What does this show to an original audience reading this? Because at this point, if you were reading this for the first time, you might be thinking, David's the guy. He might be the Messiah. This is it. This is the time. Then you keep listening to this being read out loud, and you're like disappointed. David's not the guy. It's clear. David's not the capital O one that God's people actually need. But as you continue to read the Bible, what is revealed to us? Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the one who always keeps his word. Jesus is the one who always keeps his covenant or keeps his promise. Think about how Jesus is the true king and we are the true Mephibosheth. Like Jesus on the cross... You can't think of more extravagant of kindness. The book of Romans says it like this. God shows his love. God demonstrates his love or extravagant kindness in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, like Mephibosheth would have been David's enemy in the ancient line of thinking, while we were still enemies of God, God showed his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, enemies, he died for us. Not that he was just kind of nice to us. Not that he just like maybe gave us some benevolence in, in the form of some gifts or whatever. No, the ultimate gift, he died. He gave up his life. That's as extravagant as of kindness as you could come up with for those that are your enemies, right? It doesn't get more extravagant than that. It doesn't get more hesed than that, right? Jesus on the cross is the ultimate form of hesed for people who are spiritually handicapped like Mephibosheth. L- listen to how Ephesians talks about this. It's just showing Jesus to be, showing God to be the true David. And it's not just being spiritually handicapped the language of, of Ephesians 1 or Ephesians 2 is spiritually dead. Verse 1 of Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Like Saul was a child of wrath. He received the wrath of God. Like anyone who would have been associated with Saul in the Old Testament, your days were numbered probably in the tradition of how things worked. Like that's what Paul is saying here about us. That if you're a child of wrath, your days are numbered, spiritually speaking. 
But then comes verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, being extravagant in his kindness, but God, being a God of hased, like he revealed himself to Moses. Look at it. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love, the hased love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, like that's a worse state than Mephibosheth was in. We were dead in our trespasses, like dead in our sins, like non-responsive spiritually speaking. You can't resuscitate yourself spiritually speaking. You have to have someone come from the outside of you and awaken you, revive you. Christian language here, resurrect you, right? That's what Paul's saying here. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Christ is raised from the dead in here, in history, space and time. If you're a Christian, you're united to him. What's true of him is true of you. And so you're raised as well. You're resuscitated as well. If you're spiritually handicapped, you're healed as well. If you're spiritually dead, you're made alive as well. That's the gospel. God is rich in mercy, it says. See that in verse 4? Just like we saw in our text today from David being rich in mercy, extravagant kindness to Mephibosheth, God is this even more in Jesus. God has made covenants with men in the Old Testament like Abraham, Genesis 12, like Moses at Sinai, like David, like we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the final covenant, the final promise is the new covenant that Jesus made with his followers and all who come after him. We say it every week at the Lord's table, the new covenant in his blood that basically says, think about it, Jesus says this is a new covenant, a new loving relationship, a new agreement based on this loving relationship that's in my blood, in my sacrifice, in my death for you. If you receive it by faith and don't try to earn anything, just, just receive that I'm going to take the wrath of God that you deserve, like we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to take that on myself. I'm going to be treated as a child of wrath in your place. And the wrath of God is serious. It, it's, it, it's, sin is really, really serious. The punishment is horrible, like someone being crucified. And he's saying, you don't have to have that. I'm going to take it in your place. If you just trust this work that I did on the cross, receive it without trying to earn it, you will be saved. Mephibosheth is, is, a, is a foreshadowing of this. He didn't earn anything. He just received the promise of the king and believed his word by faith. He didn't look up at David. We, we don't read this in the text and go, mm, David, I don't know if you can really pull this off. I mean, can you really command these people to be my servants and like till the land for me and give me the, the produce of the land that I can eat well 
and, and someone's going to carry me to your table, and I'm going to eat there too. No, he just received it. He's like, all right, I'm going to believe David. I'm going to believe that David's a man of his word. I'm not going to need more evidence. I'm not going to need more explanation. I'm just going to receive it because I need it. And I'm just going to show up. And for us, the resurrection is the word of the king, the, the, the final stamp, the all, the all that we should need to trust the king, that he will do what he says, that he will keep his promises. So even more than David, Jesus has shown himself to be the true king, one, always keeping his covenant. See, the, the new covenant in his blood is stamped as it's real, it works, you can trust it, see the empty tomb. He always keeps his covenant. See the empty tomb. And two, showing extravagant kindness to the undeserving. Just like David was to Mephibosheth, Jesus is that to us. See the gospel in this account today. See the good news in this account today. This is our God. This is our Hesed God. He always keeps his word. He will always be a God of extravagant kindness. And, and, and I think simply, let's rejoice in this. Let, if, if we have a, an, an image of God in our head that is anything but this, let's fight to have this replace it. That God is rich in mercy. That God is a God of Hesed. God is a God of extravagant kindness. This is who he is. This is who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word that points forward to who you are in the gospel. Thank you for the vividness of it. The extraordinary, extravagant mercy of the king. May that melt our hearts want to draw near to you, draw near to your throne of grace, of mercy, of kindness, with confidence, because you've, you've changed our identities in the gospel, from those who are enemies to those that are sons and daughters. Help us walk in that and rejoice in that and live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.